welcome. This is this is the first episode of what we believe is going to be something that's a little bit different than maybe what you've ever heard before. But but this is generations. And the reason why it's generations is because, you know, we have a boomer, we have an Xer, and you're going to also at times hear a millennial and maybe even others and some special guests on generations. And we're going to talk about sports and it's it's not something that is just hey, who this this person's better because they were in this era and that person's better in this era, but really talk about how things have changed, some things maybe for the better, maybe some things for the worse, how some things might be lost, how some things are changed and, and maybe never going back and, and provide some insights and thoughts about those and just the perspective across these different generations. And with me today, my name is Jonathan Tan. I'm the Xer. We're going to talk a little bit about like where our fandom started from and and where our thoughts are and some of the things that we observe and things have changed over the years. And with me today is 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 one of my good friends and co-host Steve Lipson. Hello, Steve. Hey, everybody. I'm as excited about this as my friend Jonathan is. I am the boomer. I'm 65. Let's hear from Medicare. And I'm a complete sports fanatic, have been since I can basically remember things. Uh, you know, we'll talk about my history in a bit about I grew up in the LA area and all those teams I saw. But yeah, I'm very excited about this. And I think it will be something worth listening to. Yeah, so this is something that Steve and I have been kicking around. We're now part of that crew that shows up early in the morning, solves the world's problems over coffee. Although Steve doesn't drink coffee, but that's neither here nor or there but we've got a whole cast and crew of of goofballs that uh you know have inspired discussions and we started tossing around this concept of of generations and how things have changed and there's a lot of interesting things and i think steve's got some insights that are really intriguing to me and there's actually some specific players that are a little bit before my time that may have been kind of lost in the wash because of how we view sports today but we're definitely great in their time. And there's always arguments on, are they still good today? But in their t respective time, I think there's some of these players that have been lost. And, and you and I have been talking about, you know, I bought up Bobby Gritch. And for those that don't know, he was a uh, middle infielder for the then California Angels. And uh, Steve knows a lot about Bobby Gritch. But uh, let's let's start there. Like, where's the, where's your fandom start? Steve, and let's just start exploring, you know, some of that so that the listeners can understand, you know, where you're coming from and what you grew up with and what started your fandom. Well, I I was an L.A. guy, grew up in Long Beach and where incidentally Bobby Gritch grew up. But um, I, you know, I remember liking the Rams with Roman Gabriel and that transition to Pat Hayden and Vince Ferragamo for their first Super Bowl against the Steelers. I went to many a Laker game with Jerry West and Elgin Baylor playing. And then, of course, I transitioned to Showtime that, that was so successful. And uh, in baseball, I was a, a diehard Dodger fan. And I remember as a kid, my father taking me to see Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale pitch. But in my more formative years, I was a Lasorda guy in the sense that I, I saw, say, Russell Lopes and Garvey do their thing for a decade. And I did like the Angels, although the Angels were pathetic. And I even, believe it or not, liked the LA Kings long before they were any good, long before Wayne Gretzky was uh, was a player. And we, I, I have a vivid memory of going to games, and there'd be 4,000 people in the forum that held 16505 for the Kings. And 
you could just either sit way up top or sit in one section, whatever you wanted, because no one was there. So I've, I've been a sports fan as long as I can remember. And what kind of started this program, this cast, was even though I, I get along very well with Jonathan, he speaks in languages I don't understand so much. And I think it's all got to do with analytics. And in my opinion, as, as a boomer, um, this overwhelming desire to quantify everything in an attempt to understand and or control outcomes. And to me, that's the antithesis of sports because I like the drama. I like the mystique. I, I, I grew up in believing the any given Sunday, which is buzzword for on any given day, some team can rise up and beat someone far better than them. And I just like looking at things that way. I, I like the mystery of sports. I don't try and understand it in the same way that Jonathan does, but that's where I'm coming from. So, I mean, you know, just to put a little bit of more bow on that, you know, the 1985 Villanova team or, you know, Valvano's NC State team, like those are those teams that you view as that any given Sunday, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, there there are, you know, there's, there's an old saying, I think it was, um, I can't remember who it was attributed to, one of the, one of the famous sports writers, but, you know, the race doesn't always go to the strong or the fast or the fight to the strong, but that's the way to bet. So he was a Damon Runyon, I think, the bookkeeper. But, yeah, you know, if, if, if it was just the best players win all the time, it'd be pretty easy, and, and sports would actually be pretty boring. But I, I believe in the notion that players rise to the occasion. I mean, not all of them. Some do. And also, on, under, under circumstances, things happen. I'll just, I'll just give you a quick example because I don't want to get too far off track, but I remember watching the Lakers play Portland. I believe it was in the uh, West Finals. It was the first year Kobe and Shaq won. And Portland was up, I think, by like double digits in the fourth quarter. And and they were just doing so much better. And, and the, the notion was everyone in L.A. knew Kobe and Shaq hated each other. So if they didn't win this year, one of them was going, and the Lakers are going to be broken up. And Rasheed Wallace, who was a, a great player, had a number of just his, his signature baseline 15-footers. Now, this was before, I appreciate this, before the three-point shot. And they went all the way in and came out. And if you're watching the game, I mean, he shoots that shot 100 times, he makes 99 of them. And these, for whatever basketball magic reason, came out. The Lakers rallied to win. They beat them, and they went on to go three titles in a row. And it's just, you know, to me, that, that's, the, that's the intrigue, the drama, and the beauty of sports. No, and I, and I agree with you. And so before we before we get a little bit further on to, you know, my obsession with, like you saying, controlling outcomes or at least attempting to control outcomes. So you, you take kind of the diametrically opposed fandom. Steve is is definitely SoCal born and bred through and through. And so how do you become friends? You get friends with a Giants fan, <laughs> with a guy that was born in Sacramento, California. Uh, someone whose fandom is centered around Bay Area sports, because Sacramento, is, as as everybody knows, we didn't get the Sacramento Kings until 1986. And uh, coincidentally, you know, I was only in junior high school uh, when they first came. So it was beginning freshman year when they really started their first season. So we had no professional sports in Sacramento. Uh, for for the really really old school, so the other boomers that are out there might remember the Solons, the Sacramento Solons, which was a minor league team. But outside of that, you pretty much were were formed by the Bay Area fandom. 
And so I'm one of the weird ones where diehard Giants fan, and we'll talk more about this over the next few episodes, but, you know, as far as baseball goes, I, I actually hated baseball initially. I, I just despised it, and we'll talk more about that later. And I didn't become a fan until until after my grandfather died, and that was part of, uh, you know, kind of what, what lent into that. And we'll We'll get into that later. And then, but I was a Raider fan. And to be perfectly honest, the, my very first NFL or my very first team that I loved was the Steelers. And that's our other host. His name is Guthrie. So he's uh, hanging out with us today. He's so not a problem. But I mean, I was originally a, a Steeler fan. So when I was, you know, five years old, and you mentioned the Ferragamo years. I, I definitely remember that that 79 Super Bowl. That was probably the third Super Bowl. I remember watching the first. Uh, my first one was really Steelers and, and Dallas. And I hated the Cowboys. And the only reason why I like the Steelers and not the Raiders is because when you watch television for those, and this is part of generations, like how did we consume sports? That was Those were the teams that you saw on, on television. You saw in Sacramento, you saw the Steelers and you saw the Cowboys and you might get one other national game. And of course there was Monday night football, but the Raiders were kind of, you know, I was a fan, but kind of a casual fan for the Raiders because we didn't really get to see them all that often. We were getting the Steeler games usually for the AFC games. You got that AFC game of the week. You got the NFC game of the week and maybe one other game, not like you do today where you can pretty much stream any team that you want. And then just by default, I was a Warriors fan. But really, I was a Dr. J fan, and not because I really got a chance to see Dr. J. And we'll, we'll talk about that on this episode and, and others on how you viewed basketball, especially back then. You know, there was no live, live basketball, or maybe once a week on Sundays. But I was a Dr. J fan, and mostly because on the comic books that I read, there would be Converse ads for Dr. J on the back of these comic books and there would be you know a, a comic drawing of dr j dunking a basketball in his converse shoes and so the myth and miracle that was dr j where my fandom came from and then i became a barkley fan and then subsequently you know the kings because the kings came you kind of had to like the kings and i hated the 49ers and the the irony behind that is my great aunt who's since passed. And I'm going to use some terms here that don't necessarily exist today. And I don't mean anything derogatory by them in any sense of the word to my aunt or any of the other folks that ever did these kind of jobs. But if you think about back then, so my great aunt was the head team cook for the San Francisco 49ers back when they used to train in Rockland. And for those that aren't old enough to know or don't recall, you know, a lot of these football teams, you know, would go and train in these much smaller communities that kind of spread their fan base. And a lot, a lot of times there were just happenstance reasons on why they trained in these different areas. So it's not like today where they had, you know, full blown second facilities in a whole nether city or town. You know, this goes back kind of like where you still have Dallas today in Oxnard, local to us. Cowboys still come to Oxnard um, still frequently. But uh, yeah, so she was the head team cook and all of my cousins are 49er fans and I just they were insufferable, especially after 1981 and when they beat the Bengals for their first Super Bowl. 
So that's where, where my fandom came from. And uh, if you take the two guys that, you know, the teams that they grew up with and the teams that, that, that they love and, and still to this day, diametrically opposed. So I think that's a little bit interesting that I hate your teams and I'm pretty sure you hate some of mine. Well, what's funny is, and it, I didn't know the story about, about your grandparents, but when I was a kid, this was in the uh, late 60s or mid, mid to late 60s, the Rams used to have their training camp at Blair Field in Long Beach. And uh, we could ride our bikes there in about 15 minutes. And somewhere in the attic, I've got pictures of me. I was probably, you know, four foot three next to Merlin Olson, Deacon Jones, Lamar Lundy, Billy Truax, the whole crew. And, and you know, that was the day you'd ride your bike up there. These guys would be walking in. And, and we're, you know, I don't want to keep saying we're going to get to this, but we will get to this. That was back in the day when it was very common for football players to have second jobs. And these guys, I mean, not during the season, of course, but in the off season, these guys drove beer trucks, they sold insurance, they did stuff. So approaching them was like not a big deal. And you would walk up there and just, you know, for, for a 10 year old, or whatever, you chat with these guys, and they were just on their way to practice. And it, it was, it was very funny. But the one story I want to say back to the, the fandom is I, I was just looking this up. So I, growing up in Long Beach, we had the luxury of, you know, seeing whatever LA game we wanted to see. My, my folks were both school teachers, but my dad was a big sports fan and he would take us to games. And I, I distinctly remember when the forum opened, I think the year or two later, we went to see the Celtics Lakers and Dave Cowens, the, the, I think he's a hall of famer, uh, was a rookie. And we went as per usual, my father wanted to park on the street because to avoid the parking fees. Jack can't cook and cut a deal with Inglewood, so there's no street parking anywhere near. So he probably paid, you know, eight bucks to park and then, you know, 12 bucks for tickets, maybe, you know, $2 for a hot dog. And my father probably had a beer for $2. And he was just outraged. He's like, okay, this is it. You know, this is like a, you know, $45 night and we're, we're I'm done. I'm, and he never went to see another game. He was a big fan. He'd watch him on TV, but he's like, yeah, it's pricing me out. So all those things are kind of, kind of interesting. We thought you'd like to hear about them. And, and, it just kind of lays the foundation for it sounds like both of us were indoctrinated into being fans at a very early age. And it's it's something that's lingered. I mean, I, I still, you know, go to the sports page first. I'd much rather read the sports page online, of course, than the latest shenanigans in D.C. or Ukraine or wherever it's going on. So to me, sports is drama. It's it's a beautiful thing to watch if it's done right. And it's a it's a great way to spend a day or an evening or whatever watching your favorite team or watching the team you want to really want to lose, which, you know, is, is common also. Well, and I think something that we want the listeners to understand, like this, this show is not get off my lawn. It was back, better back in my day. It, it's really the juxtaposition of, you know, across these different generations and how things were, were different. Not saying that they were better or worse, but but to your point, you know, I, I think you're right. Sports was more of a glorified hobby, maybe might be the way of saying it for some of these, you know, for some of these, uh, depending on which league you were in and, and depending on how it was. Because, I mean, I would say I think a, a reasonable argument was baseball was the, you know, it's America's game. Right. So it was the heartbeat of America. I, I'm going to guess. And I think this is a better question for you, Steve, to answer is, you know, could you name the starting lineup? of the San Francisco Giants in the 60s more readily than you can name the starting lineup of the Oakland Raiders or, you know, pick another NFL team of the time. 
Here, here's how nerdy I was, and maybe still am. Back in the day, and then like I, I believe I'm not mistaken, the All Star Games today, and and I used to, that was hours. That that was like you know, okay, please don't bother me. I'm gonna watch this game. I know every player on every team. I know the guys who should have made the team. I know everything. So yeah, I I, I can still remember you know the the Giants lineup from the '60s from Cepeda and Jimmy Ray Hart and the Alou brothers, of course, my favorite Willie Mays. And you know today I'm I'm I mean I could watch the All Star Game tonight. I'd imagine, but I only know a handful of people, and I think what's happened, and this is, this is some, this is a topic I, I enjoy talking about. And I'd like to know everyone's opinion. Is is I just think the globalization of the game is much better in a lot of ways, and you know it's a two-edged sword. It's, it's, it's hurt things, and you know one one of my big pet peeves is homegrown and giving people time. And I think, and that this probably does sound like a get off my line kind of thing. I think the the desire for instant gratification has permeated everything, and they don't give people a chance to grow. They don't give people a chance to to learn and and learn the skill of the game. They're thrust into situations far too early, and it's you know I want to win today. I mean, if the general manager went to the boss and said, "Okay, we got some young guys, and I really think let them develop, and four or five years will be a strong contender." he or she'd be looking for a new job. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. They want to do what you can right now. And that's, that's something I really miss. Uh, that's one of the aspects of sports that I don't think has gotten better. I, I liked the nurturing. I, I remember, you know, when you know the Dodgers had a minor league front team, a triple-A team in Albuquerque, and you knew who was good at Albuquerque, who was hitting the ball well, and who was going to be the replacement. So you knew Lopes was slowing down, and all of a sudden, here comes Steve Sachs. And that's just, that's just how it went. And you knew the guys who... We're going to be the next players, and and I I have a lot of friends who are fans, and I don't think very many of them know who's hot in the minor league system. It's just not that kind of thing anymore. It's like, okay, you can you produce right now? If you can't, forget about it. Well, it's an interesting. You brought up kind of another point that we've discussed in the past, which I think is a very interesting one about the homegrown kind of thing. So you get a lot of people that ding the Warriors for having this absorbent you know salary and being in the luxury and being able to pay for players. But what people forget is their big three were all drafted by the Warriors and were all nurtured by the Warriors. And I think to be able to create a dynasty, and I think there's a lot of examples in my lifetime and in your lifetime as well, that those dynasties are really the core is always around those players that are nurtured. And I think that's a long-term success. So let's, let's go to the 90s Yankees. And the, into the 2000 Yankees, right? They had the same core of Mariano Rivera, the captain, Derek Jeter, Jorge Posada, Bernie Williams. You know, those guys were the guys that were homegrown. And then you had those key pieces that they brought in, like O'Neill, that were outsiders, but, you know, big key contributors. Even the Lakers, I mean, for, for hating the Lakers, the moment that they got magic and they had Worthy, I mean, those guys were drafted by the Lakers. like. You know, they did have Kareem was brought in as a free agent, but I mean, they had a lot of homegrown people. Larry Bird, same thing with with the Celtics, right? Those and and there's there's Guthrie telling me that he doesn't want me to bring up, you know, Kevin McHale and and the, and the Celtics. No, we do but not I mean, like the Celtics. Yes, but I mean, those guys were were all homegrown, and I think that is, you know, I didn't think we'd necessarily get 
to it at, at today's discussion, but I mean, I think that is that is key. You bring it up, the nurturing one. I think from a fandom, and I think as fans, we want, we like that better, right? We we one one. It's it feels like you earn it more. We're not on the court, but we all feel like we act. We do. We feel like you know we refer to our teams as our teams, and we when we win and lose. And I think when we do it with again, I just did it there with the people that were drafted and were original part of your team, it feels a little bit better. Perfect example. The, the first couple of championships for the Warriors were just as sweet as they could be. And then they brought, you know, they brought Kevin Durant. And don't get me wrong, I was a fan of Durant's before he became a Warrior, and I was ecstatic that he became a Warrior. But he was that hired gun. And so on that, since we're on this topic, like, how did it feel... Shaq was that hired gun the second go around the second dynasty of the Lakers. Did it feel as good or maybe it did because you had Kobe and Kobe was pretty much homegrown. How, how did that feel? Well, I, I think this is one of the, one of the interesting parts about sports back in my day of watching, um, they didn't do this wholesale trading and, and bringing people to trade deadline and, and really altering. I mean, Look at the Lakers. So the Lakers this year, you know, trade deadline, they've got eight new players. And they, they, they still have AD and LeBron, but they change everything. So I always felt that the Lakers um, were homegrown also. And they they relied on a lot of draft choices that, you know, Michael Cooper, Norm Nixon, you know, obviously, you know, Magic was one of the best picks of all time, worthy. And they did these things. I mean, one of the ways they got Magic was they, they got rid of a guy named Don Ford from UC Santa Barbara. I think they traded his rights to Cleveland or something. Cleveland ended up being terrible. So there are all, there are all these factors, and and it's interesting. So yeah, I, I I think it felt good for the Lakers. Put put it this way, I was a lot more vested in how teams did back in the day because I felt like I knew the players, and they weren't hired guns. They were on there and they're doing their thing. Now it, it bounces, but this is something I'd really like to talk about. And as you can tell, we're kind of meandering, but. Eventually, we'll get to topics for, for a segment, but I think what's very interesting is how sports has changed. And, and you know, Jonathan's, Jonathan's favorite team, the Warriors, is a great example. I mean, Steph Curry has arguably changed the NBA in a way no one else has done but Wilt. I mean, Wilt, they made all these rule changes because he's too dominant. But Steph's three-point shooting has, has changed the NBA. But it's changed the NBA not because of his three-point shootings, because the Warriors were successful and they were smart in finding a system that gave him the freedom to do his thing. Now everybody launches threes all the time. And it gets back to our original point of analytics where Jonathan will say, you know, if you take, you know, 30 threes and, and you make 40% of them, you come up with something. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not the point that people are not that creative in sports, in my opinion, certainly not executives. But what they are is they're very derivative, and they they see what works, and they emulate it, or they copy it, or they steal it. So Steph Curry works because he's got Clay beside him. He's got Draymond doing his thing, and he's got one of the best coaches in the history of basketball, and they've got a lot of great role players. They had a lot of great role players. So now every team just thinks you just launch threes. But other sports, you know, in, in baseball, the Dodgers, Koufax and Drysdale, you know, they they pitched lower, low low scoring games and the Dodgers never scored much. They had good defense up the middle. They stole bases and they'd win two to one or three to two. And now, you know, it's home run derby. Same, same thing in football In football back in the day, 
people threw the ball long, whether it's the Mad Bomber with the Raiders, Daryl LaMonica, or it's the Cowboys stretch the field, or even the Rams. Roman Gabriel threw the ball downfield. Now you need to throw the ball five yards and the guys, you know, receivers run with it, or you have the Mahomes, Jalen Hurts type who can really make things move. So I think it's very interesting how, how the sports have changed and how the players change. But what we're going to talk about is how the fans change, how you look at it, look at it differently. And uh, I, I think that's a fascinating topic. I hope there are people out there listening who would agree with this, but I still like sports, but I will do the get off my lawn bit right now. I don't think sports are as exciting as they used to be. And I think, although interesting enough, if you watch an NBA playoff game, invariably it's the last, you know, last possession that, that wins. They, they've done a great job of marketing, but I, I think there's some real good values in the old days that I miss. And what makes it doubly ironically hurtful is that the primary motivating factor behind all this is free agency. And I'm a huge proponent of free agency. I, I'm, I'm an awe. I was an awe of Kurt Flood's um, courage in, in giving up big contracts to stand up for what he believed in. But the unintended consequences is you've got nothing but mercenaries that bounce from team to team to team, wherever needs them most. Oh, we need a right-hander. Let's get Justin Verlander for the last you know four weeks. And I, I think it's taken something away from sports. But that's that's why I'm a boomer. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there is some some truth to that. I think it even is truth today. When you have your guy or your guys, when you have those key people that are part of your team that you root for, and whenever they leave for another team for whatever reason, whether they're traded at the trade deadline or they leave for free agency, I mean, my guy. My favorite guy, baseball all time, was Will Clark. And when Will Clark came in 1986 as a rookie, and, and for those that, that aren't familiar, first at bat in the Astrodome, and he takes, you know, Nolan Ryan, who by all, you know, means during that season and during that era, era one of the nastiest, if not the nastiest pitcher in baseball. He's the Randy Johnson of that era. He's the, you know, Roger Clemens. I mean, although he and Clemens did overlap a little bit. I mean, you would equate him to the, you know, I, I don't know who you would equate him to today. Would it be, who, who do you think is the, you know, we don't even have the equivalent today, right? Cause he would pitch eight, nine innings. He holds the single season record for strikeouts with 383. Uh, the only person who's ever come close really is randy johnson and i mean he's just out of this world so i mean to have a comp today maybe it's verlander maybe it's scherzer i'm not sure but i mean will clark takes him out home run first at bat and the legend of will clark is born and he's called the thrill and he takes the giants from a hundred lost team in 1985 and they are at the doorstep of making the playoffs in 1986 if not for, I want to say, a no-hitter by Mike Scott, which for those that go, who's that guy? He was uh, a known um, split ball, split finger fastball guy for the Houston Astros, a teammate of Nolan Ryan's. And he would win Cy Young that year, I believe, in 1986. And the Giants would, wouldn't make win the division. Also, for those that don't recall or didn't know, that's back when there was only two divisions. 
and the, the Astros and Reds and the Atlanta Braves were in the West. So they were in the NL West uh, along with the Giants and the Padres and the Dodgers. No Rockies then, of course. And so Will Clark was my guy. And in 1992, they trade away Will Clark and they trade away, you know, they'd eventually, not in 92, but they'd eventually trade away Matt Williams. And so those were those were my guys. Robbie Thompson, Will Clark, Matt Williams, Kevin Mitchell, and eventually all of those guys left. And so I think I think you're on there to something. It's like when you have those guys, and then when your team wins with your guys, it if for whatever reason as a fan, I think it feels better. And then when you win with the okay, he's a, he's one of our guys, but he's not really our. It's the Kevin Durant example. It's like when they won with Kevin Durant, it's like oh okay, that was cool. It, it, as, it you know. So last year when the when the Warriors beat the Celtics and no Kevin Durant and all of the heresy of everyone saying, well, Steph's not one of the greatest because he's never won a finals MVP, which is just, you know, hilarious, just that that's even a narrative. And then Steph goes and wins and they win in six games and Steph wins MVP and he shines. You know, that victory felt sweeter as a fan i'm I'm gonna just guess i mean i'm not steph i'm not on the floor but i'm guessing for him there was a little bit of validation because of all the haters that were out there but again the warriors won with we won with our guys we didn't win with the hired gun we won with our guys and so i think you're right i think there is still something there i think that still exists i think people still see it it's hard to keep it around because of free agency and, and the current rules. And again, I'm with you. I think people should be able to make what they want. And, you know, there's a lot of, lot of overtones and we're not necessarily going to get that and in, get into that in this, you know, episode, but there's a lot of different things that, that harken back to, to, you know, the gladiators and people think of that as positive and, and being a gladiator back in Roman times, like you were, you know, you were going to die. <laughs> that was not a good thing. That was not to be proud of or, you know, it was a way to to really pacify the masses. And so I don't want to go that down that road too far because that's a whole nother episode for us. But I think I think you have components that one, you're, you're right. And a two, I think it still exists. It's just harder to do. Well, it's interesting. And we'll have to kind of rein in for ourselves. But it's hard when you told the Will Clark story. I mean. When I was a junior in high school, we used to go to Angel Stadium, which was on Catella Boulevard, about you know 15 minutes from my house. And anyone my age will probably remember this. He was he was unbelievably dominant. I I, I think that was the year he didn't he didn't it wasn't 383 strikeouts, but it was like in the 350s, I believe. He and the Angels were terrible. He was. You're talking about you're talking about Nolan Ryan. No, yeah, he was 22 and 16, but better than that. I would think, and I, I'd have to, I, this is one of those stats I definitely don't have my fingertips with. I think at least half a dozen times he went into the fifth inning with a no-hitter. He was just that dominant. And the Angels were not a good team. They, they were before the uh, the Don Baylor, Bobby Gritch, Reggie Jackson, Gene Mock crew. But Nolan was fantastic. And my friends and I used to go down to the third base line before the game and watch him warm up. And the sound of his ball hitting the catcher's glove was just amazing. And and he was just a man among boys. He Guys were lucky to even get a decent cut in him. If the Angels had been a somewhat decent team, he probably would have rewritten the record books. 
But as it was, this is just one stat. I think it's very funny, though. Come up. He started 41 games. He finished 26 games. And, you know, that was a deal. He did not come out. He'd, pitch, he'd have pitch counts in the, I imagine, 150s, 160s if necessary. And, it, you know, it was electric. So, yeah, I, I, getting back to the point we really had, yeah, I, I think that there must have been some element of satisfaction for Steph and the gang when they went without KD. Because, you know, that's, that just is, is a bever, more of a burden on them, and they, they stepped up the occasion. But as you can see, we're both, we're both lifelong sports fans. The threads are kind of going everywhere. But, you know, this is, this is our initial debut. And later on, we will have topics where, where we talk about things, whether it's, whether it's free agency or, you know, why, why there are no starters anymore that, that can go complete games. I read that the Tigers had a three-man no-hitter. And you know, prompted conversations. Why can't why can't starters go seven or eight innings? I've got I've got theory on that, which which falls into my whole theory of sports. But um, yeah, the, these are very interesting topics, and at least they're interesting to us. And we hope that uh, you like them too. So just just for your sanity, I've got some numbers for you. Okay. Nolan Ryan, seven no hitters, so he has the most in, in major league history, which is Three more than anyone else. But on top of that, he's tied with Bob Feller for 12 one-hitters. And he has another 18 two-hitters. Yeah, he, he, uh, he was pretty dominant. And it was, it was very fun to watch. And, you know, you really, you really felt like you're seeing something special. I suppose you still see things special now, and I, I know they're in different sports. People are special, but but back then it was a it was a little different. And like I say, like like Jonathan said, I mean there was not a lot of TV action, so you didn't have a lot of games on. And uh, obviously, TBS with Ted Turner and the Braves changed everything. But back in the day, if you if you were in Southern California, you wouldn't really see Nolan Ryan. You, you'd you'd have to go to a ballpark to to see him pitch, and he was. Uh, he was definitely special. So I felt good about Southern California because every sport had every every team had a superstar. Interestingly, every every team had a superstar announcer, <laughs> from Vince Scully to to Dick Enberg. The Kings had a guy named Jiggs McDonald that that was that was fantastic. Of course, there's Chick Hearn. Um, it was just fun. It was it was a fun time, and and you felt like they were part of your community, even though um, you know I'm sure in a lot of ways they weren't, but. You had the feeling that they were your team. They were they represented you and your community. It was a good feeling. And now I think the overwhelming desire to win at all costs has kind of permeated everything, including sports. And you know, so you you bring in the best guy and you just say, God, would wouldn't it be great if if you know the, the Warriors could get Giannis or they could get Giannis and Joel Embiid? Like, really? You 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 want all the best guys on one team? It's kind of funny, but I think fans don't really care now. They they just want they want to win. And it's all about rings and titles, and it's very interesting. So I think we got a little bit of time left, and so I'm going to just start rat-a-tatting you with with some high-level topics, get okay. some quick quick thoughts, and these are going to be some more in-depth topics that I think that we're going to start getting into in, in future episodes and opportunities to talk about them. But, I mean, you, you kind of already talked about one, free agency. Free agency across all of the three major sports happened at different times and there was different versions or iterations of, of them across the different 
landscape for each of the sports. You had plan B free agency in, in the NFL and the, the 49ers kind of built their dynasty around that, you know, that was kind of a coup. They ended up building themselves around the whole concept of, of plan B free agency, which ended up getting, I believe went to the Supreme court and had to be struck down by antitrust laws. But I mean, so thoughts on, you, you kind of brought up Kurt flood earlier um, and some of, of just the, the, the idea of a free agency. Well, what, what's interesting is, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm big on um, coming around to the, the beginning and from the end. I mean, Bobby Gritch, we, we mentioned Bobby Gritch. So I'll, I'll give you a real quick thumbnail bio of Bobby high school football star, full ride to UCLA gives up football for baseball Orioles, fantastic second baseman, gold Glover, a number of years in a row. Traded Angels, uh, very solid player. The guy behind Bobby Gritch in Baltimore was none other than Ron Shelton, who grew up in Montecito, California, not far from us, and went on to be a very famous director. White Men Can't Jump and the whole thing, Bull Durham. And he was stuck in the minors. And that was back in the day when, you know, you could be the second best player in the league at your position, but the first best player was in front of you and your team didn't want to trade you, you were stuck. And so it's interesting how free agency broke the chains on that. People can move and bounce. There's a lot more freedom for everyone. And just like everything else, double-edged sword, by the same token, it, it kind of destroyed the community feel, which which may have been artificial. Maybe something that the owners kind of promoted to, to increase fandom. But, you know, I will say that that to me, free agency – was the, the the single defining change in athletics even bigger than Jackie Robinson the color barrier it just it changed everything and things will never be the same in in a, in a positive way I'm all for players make as much as they can I'm all for people being able to work in the city county state they want to but from a fan's perspective from a boomer's fan's perspective it you know it's tricky to see KD you know bounce from team to team to team I I actually really like KD as, seemingly as a person and a player, but he does he does seem to have the label of hired gun, and he'll go and now you know maybe in Phoenix the big three of you know Devin Booker and Bradley Beal and KD will do something, but it, it's hard to imagine a, a fan in Phoenix, a longtime fan, thinking anything other than they're just hired guns. Well, and I think again from my fandom, and I don't want to speak for the fan today, but for my fandom, having that. You know, having the higher gun is okay, but I want to win with my guys. And I know sometimes I need that higher gun to get me across the line. You know, the Dave Winfield, you, you mentioned it, the, the Verlander at the end. But, you know, Dave Winfield, I mean, who remembers Dave Winfield with the Toronto Blue Jays? Who remembers Dave Winfield with the Minnesota Twins? I mean, these are these are crazy things. I think the majority of people probably, I would imagine, you know, know, hopefully know that Dave Winfield was originally a Padre and then went to the Yankees. But aside from that, you know, he in the latter part of his career, he was that hired gun, right, wrong or indifferent and, and more power to Dave Winfield. I mean, he was an amazing player. And uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, he was the only guy ever drafted in all three sports. I believe you're right. But one one last uh, future topic. I read a quote that Dave Winfield was saying, yeah. He could have been like Shoyatani. He could have been a two-way player. He's that good. And I'm just like, you know, 
I think is he, he obviously pitched in college. He pitched for the Minnesota team that lost to USC in the College World Series. But I just think it's funny the egos on these athletes, even at you know sixty or whatever old he is, sixty five. They they still got they still have to be the best, and it's just it's just funny to watch them. And obviously the the salaries that people are drawing now must be very very uh, divisive to them because you know guys make more in a season than they made in their career. But you know there's there's a lot of topics we have out there, and we'll get to all of them in due time. Yes, and then I think part of your being with home and those kinds of things, which will be another topic, is the death of the the local newspaper and your local reporter and your local beat writer, because I think there is a little bit of nostalgia and connection that brought those players to you and kind of told those stories. And when you have an ESPN, which is which is great, you can see what's going on all across the country, but that national view kind of dilutes some of that, uh, you know, that local flavor. So I'm going to just throw out some a couple other things and and we'll wrap up for today. But, um, you know, just those tipping points that, uh, you know, had some unintended consequences and kind of really threw modern sports today. I mean, the 81 baseball strike, the 94 baseball strike, the, the NFL lockout, um, these these quote unquote scabs that came and uh, jumped the line in the NFL. We also had the malice in the palace. And uh, we had a lot of other challenges that came from a lot of different types of things. We had gambling with Pete Rose. You have the Calvin Ridley. I don't even want to go so far as to say scandal, but Calvin Ridley ended up having a, uh, you know, incident here where he got suspended. And then you also had the current pending stuff going on with the Lions, which I don't know if we know all of the details, but we're going to get to these uh, to these things and more. And we really appreciate your time. And we hope that you can uh, listen to subsequent uh, episodes. But this is Generation. I'm Jonathan Tan. And I'm Steve. And it was great talking to everybody. Although we didn't actually talk to him. We only talked to each other. But we're assuming someone's listening. So glad to have you listening and look forward to hearing you the next time. All right. This is Generation signing off. Thank you much.